The Apprentice will soon be back on our TV screens. The format is based around various candidates undertaking a serious series of tasks until finally one remains who goes then into partnership with Lord Sugar, receiving a huge investment. These are some of the uh, statements from candidates from last year. Louisa Zisman said of herself, I have the energy of a Duracell bunny, sex appeal of Jessica Rabbit, and a brain like Einstein. Unfortunately, her battery ran out when she lost in the final. Zishan Shah said, I'm a great of my generation. I am an inventor and leader in business. I take inspiration from Napoleon. I am here to conquer. Well, he was fired in week five, very aptly, for acting more like a dictator than a leader. Some people might come to this process with a game plan. I just feel my effortless superiority will take me all the way. This is what Jason said of himself. But his superiority saw him abdicate as project manager the first time ever. And he was subsequently fired. Those, uh, those seeking to be Lord Sugar's next apprentice... They show us, maybe in an extreme way, what the world, what our society is all about. Success, power, fame, wealth. Now, I'm not saying that we, we all necessarily view ourselves as some form of Napoleon or Einstein. But we are part of a society that reflects something of these apprentices. It's a bit like uh, one of those artists that you might see on the, on the seafront that does portraits. Uh, and they, they accentuate, say, the nose or the chin or the cheekbones. And it's not really what you look like, but there is still a bit of a likeness, a bit of a resemblance. So do we want to be successful? Do we want to gain wealth? Do we want, do we want to be materialistic? Well, not necessarily, but it rubs off on us all, doesn't it? And so, therefore, there's, there's elements of that within each of us. And so these people, these apprentice candidates, they help us to see a view of the world in which we live that is pretty much the norm. Well, this afternoon, I, I want us to view, if you like, the world afresh. Not from the eyes of want-to-be apprentices, uh, not from the eyes of those around us that we may rub shoulders with, uh, not even necessarily our own perspective, but rather from the eyes of God. How does God view the world? And as we do this, we're going to start thinking about God himself. You see, we can only really understand God's view of the world that we live in when we firstly have a clear view about God himself. You see, our belief in God affects our understanding of everything. Our understanding of what happens to us, 
our understanding of what happens to our loved ones, uh, what happens in the world that we live in. Our view of God is not just, if you like, one bit of us, one segment of us. It's not partitioned off, but it affects everything about us. Our view of God shapes our thinking. It shapes our priorities. It shapes our relationships. It affects who we are and what we say, what we do. If we view God in Bible terms, then we see the world and the whole of life in a radically different way from someone who just holds some surface belief in some form of God that is out there and a bit distant and a bit remote. Well, we'll see from Hannah and from her prayer something of this in a few moments. But even so, we can sometimes become so familiar with God, so familiar with religious terms, etc., that our views are challenged only when we go through some challenging, some significant times, uh, only when something rocks us, that rocks our world. This is where we find Hannah. Uh, In the uh, first chapter, she's been through some very significant times. She's been unable to have a child. She was brought to the point of calling out to God in prayer in a really desperate situation. He answers and blesses her with a son, Samuel. And so this is the reason for her prayer that Chris read a little bit earlier. We see this in chapter 1 that as a result of what Hannah has gone through, so painful as it was, she speaks not just of what God has done specifically in her life, but she actually speaks of how God operates in all of life. Hannah has, if you like, had her views of God formed and shaped as a result of life experiences. I'm sure we can relate to this. Our views are shaped, aren't they, from life experiences. We may have views on a whole range of different things, whether it be politics, how to bring up our children, friendships, everything, including our views of God, are shaped by life experiences. And for Hannah, she prays to God, and through this prayer we can see what Hannah sees. We can feel what Hannah feels. We can know what Hannah knows to be true in relation to God as a result of struggling with not having children to the absolute point of wanting to die. So let's take a look at how Hannah views God in this prayer. And maybe we too this afternoon can see God maybe in a different light. See a bigger view of God that will shape every aspect of our lives. Hannah starts off in her prayer with words that speak of her joy and delight in God. She sees that there is no one like him. In effect, he's incomparable. Verse 1 says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. As I just mentioned, the last time we heard Hannah pray, things were different. She was in a 
a heartbroken, wretched state. Now Hannah starts her prayer by effectively saying in verse 1, but no one rescues like God. She says, I delight in your deliverance. She rejoices in this. The word translated rejoice here is a word that means to triumph. So we get this idea of victory. Hannah also speaks of her horn in verse 1. Now that might be a bit of a, a strange term for us. Well in the Bible a horn is a symbol. It's a symbol of one's strength. So Hannah doesn't claim this strength as her own. But rather she says in the Lord my horn is lifted high. She recognizes that God is the one who gives strength. God is the one who renews our strength. And when we consider all that Hannah has been through, she rejoices in what God has done. But what is it that God has delivered, has, has rescued Hannah from? She refers to her enemies in that verse. So what is she talking about? Well, we might think of Penina. After all, in chapter 1, we read that she's cruel to her. Grinds her down day after day, month after month, year after year. Having a dig about her not being able to, to have children. But now that Hannah has given birth to a son, Penina could no longer mock and provoke her. Penina could be one of the enemies Hannah has in mind here. But I actually think that Hannah is mainly referring to not being able to have children. This is her enemy. This was a great source of sorrow and shame to her. And she now has a son, and so she's been rescued. God has overcome her enemies. God has turned her sorrow into gladness. No one rescues like God. Hannah now goes on to say that no one is holy like God. Look at verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. We sing loads of times about the holiness of God, don't we? And the Bible talks time and again about God's holiness. And we can sometimes imagine uh, this holy God as, as being this figure on a cloud that has this long white beard and, and, and lovely white robe and just sort of hovers there over, over the earth. And, and that's maybe not too helpful, but in a sense it is in a way. Because, because God's holiness, first of all, means his separateness. When we say that God is holy, we mean that God is separate from all of creation. He is above all things. He is before all things. He is sovereign and ruler and in charge of all things. But God's holiness also refers to his righteousness and his purity. That's why there's this element of God's separateness from us. God is perfectly holy and just. Now this is important when we challenge our views of God, of who God is. Hannah's view is that he is incomparable and there is no one holy like God. God is majestic. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. Hannah is able to view God in this way. 
So we've seen so far that Hannah sees that God is incomparable. No one rescues like God. No one is holy like God. And thirdly, she sees no one protects like God. This is what Hannah is effectively saying. There is no rock like our God. In Bible times, a rock was a place of safety, of refuge. It was a place of protection. We look to all sorts of things, don't we, for refuge or our safety net. It might be our job security. That's a huge issue for us these days, isn't it? Very few people these days have a job for life. And with mortgages to pay and mouths to feed, it's a massive issue for us all. We have an aging population and so we may see our pension as a safety net. We want to be secure in our retirement. But yet we only need to read the papers or turn on the TV to see uh, that there is no, not really any, any refuge or security in our jobs or pensions for that matter. Whatever we look to, Hannah has come to appreciate that there is no safer place than to be in the hands of God. No matter what trials we may go through today, when God is our rock, we are safe and protected. That doesn't protect us from the storms of life. Hannah knows that to be true. We only need to read of Hannah's life in the preceding chapter. But ultimately, Hannah knew that God was incomparable. There is no one like God. No one rescues like God. No one is holy like God. No one protects like God. God is in control. Therefore, rejoice. That's a natural conclusion. My heart rejoices in God, in the Lord, she says. Do we share Hannah's view of God? Do we really believe in God in the same way that Hannah does? And what does this view of God actually mean? What does it mean to our lives? What does it mean to our day-to-day lives? What did it mean to Hannah's life? Because as we look now at the main section of Hannah's prayer, we see that a faith in God, as expressed in verses 1 and 2 by Hannah, affects our view of everything in the world. In verse 3, Hannah speaks of pride and arrogance. This is contrasted with the knowledge that God has. That God knows everything. In effect, pride and arrogance deny God. Pride and arrogance is self-centeredness. It's self-seeking. It's self-sufficiency. I'm alright. I can look after myself. I'm okay, Jack. It's actually denying God. It's denying his position. It's denying God's standing. So in the light of such a God, the arrogant mouth is silenced. And having recognized our position before God, Hannah identifies a series of things that create human pride and arrogance in us. And then she shows us how differently they look in the light of a God that is incomparable. We now see a God that turns the world upside down. Actually, we see a God that turns our view 
of the world upside down. Just look with me at verses 4 and 5. We see three examples of God turning the world upside down. Very similar to the words of Jesus, whether it be in Matthew chapter 5 or Luke chapter 6 with his Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain. There is a warrior contrasted with those who stumble. The warrior's power is broken and smashed with the incomparable God. Human power is demolished. Yet those who stumble are armed with strength. Pride and arrogance based on strength and power, they look completely different if you view God as Hannah did. There is also a contrast between those who were full go hungry while those who were hungry have plenty of food. What is clear from this is that our security can't be measured by our prosperity. This links back to verse 2. There is no rock like our God. Finally, we see a contrast between a barren woman and another with many sons. These three examples, they demonstrate that just because we're in a certain place today doesn't mean that we'll be in the same place tomorrow. Life throws us some strange curveballs, doesn't it, at times? And we never really know what tomorrow might bring. I don't know about you, but, but for me, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a control freak who wants to be in charge of everything. It's unsettling to think that things can change so quickly. But they can. I was talking to a work colleague uh, just the other day about the, the terrible economic crisis that we've seen in Greece over these last few years. Huge unemployment. Public services that have just vanished. Spiraling debt. People literally struggling from one day to the next. And this is just down the road, still in Europe. And we normally think about these things maybe in Africa or India. But how hard must it have been for those people who one day seem to have it all? But yet the next day it all crumbled away. And we were discussing how hard it must be for for people whose country has pretty much changed in such a, a small space of time. But then Hannah gives us the second part of this truth. These examples of how lives can be turned upside down, they're not a result of random chance, but rather God is in control. God humbles and exalts. Look at what verses 6 to 8 say. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. God is the giver and taker of life. God sends poverty and wealth. He is the one who humbles and exalts. These things are not under our control or under the control of others. And we struggle to comprehend this, don't we? We struggle to recognize it. Do you know why? 
because we struggle to share the same view of God that Hannah has described in verses 1 and 2. How do we view human power? We look up to it. There are some out times when we worship it. How do we view wealth when it comes to security? We want more. Are we okay with being unimportant? Well, we might not want to be on the next series of The Apprentice, but we still want recognition, don't we, in, in, in some, some smaller way. As we look at Hannah's prayer this afternoon, hopefully it will, it will challenge us challenge and, and, and challenge our real thinking of life. This is how God turns our view of the world upside down. At the end of verse 8, we see why believing God in God should so completely change our attitude to everything. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. God not only established this world, but he sustains it. This world isn't independent of God. Whether we like it or not, we are not independent of God. This whole world and everything in it belongs to God and is dependent upon him. Our thinking of God shapes our thinking of this world. And Hannah's life experience testifies to this. So we've seen so far that God is incomparable. He's unparalleled, he's unmatched. We've also seen a God that turns the world upside down. We now see that in the light of all of this, a God that rules over everything. Surely this is the natural conclusion, isn't it? And so Hannah says, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. We see here a contrast of two people. Those who are faithful servants and those who are wicked. As God rules over everything, we firstly see that there are winners. A God who we have just seen created and sustains the whole universe, he takes care of his people. And that's the point here. The God who established the earth and set the world upon its foundations will guard the feet or the way of his servants. These are the winners. Your Bible may refer to servants as faithful ones or saints. These are people who have put their faith and trust in God. It is not their strength, it is not their power, it's not their wealth or their popularity that matters. We may look up to certain people in our society, but what really matters is whether we are part of God's people. It's whether we really trust in God and we will one day be described as a faithful servant. Those who are not his faithful servants, they're referred to, as I mentioned a moment ago, as wicked. Verse 10 goes on to say that these people who oppose the Lord will be shattered, they'll be broken. These are the losers, if you like. 
So God rules over all and we can either be with God or we can be against God. There's no in between. In chapter 1 we see that Hannah is childless. She couldn't overcome this problem in her own strength. She called upon God and God rescued her. And what God did for Hannah is just a small picture of what God will do in this whole world. Of what God can do for each one of us. Remember that there is no one like God. He's incomparable. God rules over everything and he will judge to the ends of the earth. God will guard his people and he will shatter his enemies. Some stark words for us there. And all this has been leading to the climax of Hannah's prayer. Uh, Look with me at what the end of verse 10 says. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. These might only be a few words, but for me, I think these are some unbelievable, amazing words. It is amazing that Hannah should now speak of God's anointed king. Especially when we consider that the book of 1 Samuel historically follows the book of Judges. And Israel, in Judges, they didn't have a king. They didn't have a king at this time. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, it finishes with the nation in utter chaos. And the final words being, in those days... Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. But Hannah now uses these words of an anointed king. He or she uses the word anointed. And the word Messiah that we're used to means anointed. And it comes from this very word that is used here in verse 10. This is the first time that this is used in scripture to describe a king, an anointed king, a Messiah. And over time, Israel would come to understand that God would send a Messiah, the anointed one, the king from David's line, who would reign forever. From this side of the cross, we know that that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and exalted at the right hand of the Father. We've been singing so many songs this afternoon about Jesus, haven't we? The Messiah, the anointed King. So we see that God rules. He rules over you and he rules over me. He rules over everything and he does this through his anointed King, Jesus. You know, centuries after Hannah prayed this prayer here, God chose a young Israelite woman to give birth to Jesus, the Messiah. Her name was Mary. And she, when she learned that she would give birth to Jesus, she also prayed a prayer that was so very similar to Hannah's. Just listen to this prayer. My soul 
glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary knew that her son would be the greatest king, a king whose kingdom would never end. And you know what? Mary knew that this king would be incomparable. She knew that he would turn our views of this world upside down. And she knew that Jesus would rule over everything. I want to finish just now with one question. A question for us all to think about, which is this. Do we view God with the same clarity and the same truth as we see in Hannah's prayer. Incomparable. Turns the world upside down and rules over everything. This is our God.